Hello everyone, it's August 22nd, 2023. Well, Luna 25 didn't make it to the moon. Well, it kind of did. Russia's been having trouble for some time outside of Leo. We'll discuss some of the details about Luna 25 and what caused this particular mishap. Getting to the moon still isn't easy, but getting the show in orbit is. And liftoff. And we've the tower. Welcome to episode 423 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So Dennis, what shuttle trivia do you have for us this week? Well, this week I have something that might be so painfully obvious to some of you, and maybe something you never thought about if you were me. And it's that the, uh, <laughs> the hatch uh, to just get into the shuttle, like that the crew actually, you know, gets it, ingresses and egresses the vehicle. In my brain, I always figured it would open towards the tail of the spacecraft, but it actually opens towards the belly of the orbiter. And the reason for that, which makes total sense, sense in retrospect, is that after, you know, the shuttle lands horizontally, if you've got a crew that needs to get out of there potentially in a hurry, and they had just spent a good period of time on orbit, and so are, you know, feeling a little weak relative, relatively to like compared to how they normally would be, um, then by opening it towards the belly, that's going to be opening it down. And so you don't have to fight against the gravity and the hatch is going to want to flop open once you kind of unlatch it, I guess, and push. So, yeah, <laughs> that's... And, uh, you know, Ben, you pointed out in retrospect, it, it, that does make it, it... You do see where the uh, the hinge line is for the <laughs> uh, for it whenever you look at it from the outside. That is at the yeah. bottom, like towards the, yeah, yeah. the belly. Col- Colin says that the door looks like a toilet seat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so the hatch opens outward, right? Um, how uh, is that safe? I guess you make it so reinforced that you don't need to worry about the pressure accidentally pushing Yeah, remember, <laughs> if the hatch opens inward... You can't get out during a fire. Right. Well, that's an important safety feature. Mm. True. And and ever since Apo- the Apollo 1 pad fire, NASA does not design crewed vehicles or I believe tolerate crewed vehicles with a hatch that opens inward. They all have to open outward. So yeah, a crewed vehicle that launches, but like obviously as far as like a docking hatch, right? Those still open inward, right? Because I'm thinking of when, you know, say a Dragon spacecraft docks with the International Space Station, you have two hatches which both open inward, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you still have that, the but way. there is always, yeah. but they do always put at least one hatch that opens outward so that you can get out. What, wherever you're egressing is, that's mm-hmm. always going to open outward. Luna 25 uh, didn't make it. Uh, so this happened, what, uh, four days ago, I think, or that's when they began the maneuvers to uh, land this spacecraft and uh, some things went wrong. So, Dennis, uh, you have sort of a, I think you have some details here that you might want to go into before we talk about what happened, it looks like. So, did you want to describe this spacecraft in a little bit more detail, perhaps? Yeah, to kind of set things up, Luna 25 uh, is kaput, is, is, is the actual news, but like, what was it doing before that happened? And so, uh, if you go back 10 episodes uh, on 413, we talked about it. Um, and that was more about just the delay um, that they were originally going to fly it earlier this summer, but they pushed it back to uh, August 11th. And it did actually take off August 11th um, on a Soyuz 21B with a frigate upper stage. So, you know, I got to admit, like, I was, I was optimistic. I know the lunar landings are always going to be tough, but like the way the uh, Russian, uh, interplanetary uh, space program has been going. Just making it beyond LEO is wonderful. And so, uh, indeed, the frigate (laughs) upper stage was able to put it in an Earth parking orbit and then one hour later into a translunar trajectory. You kept seeing these tweets online or, you know, on online that were talking about how, uh, you know, hey, they did a successful burn. They did a successful this and that and the other thing. And it was great. And, uh, uh, interestingly enough, I like that after the uh, frigate parts with the uh, with Luna 25, it then does some maneuvers to avoid hitting the moon itself. Um, if only Luna 25 could have done the same. Yeah. No, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, but yeah, the relevant point that you're talking about though is that well, I guess just before then was uh, on August 16th. So just you know five days after launch, uh, they did two uh, engine firings with its main engine. So the spacecraft itself uh, was able to break and put itself into a lunar orbit that was about uh, well. 91 by 113 kilometers. And so that's great. It's in lunar orbit. You know, you you like those tweets, you get excited. And then a few days later on August 19th at uh, 2.10 p.m. Moscow time or 7.10 a.m. Eastern time. So that's uh, Saturday for for all y'all. And a command was given to put the spacecraft into its pre-landing orbit, which is an 18 by 100 kilometer 
you know, very uh, eccentric orbit that, you know, that's getting quite close to the lunar surface, 18 kilometers. And I remember on that episode 413 being like, wow, that's, that's pretty wild, right? That's, you know, that's scooting pretty close uh, to the surface before you do your final kind of maneuvers, which, I mean, it's probably nothing crazy or, you know, unimaginable, but it's just something new, like to me that I hadn't encountered before. So the, the really low orbit um, that they move into actually is, it's cool because it's it's not super common to to get that low, uh, eighteen kilometers. But what that allows you to do is to treat landing like uh, like a home and transfer, um, which right is the the most efficient way for for you to change orbits given certain certain things are not true, right? Like if you're going from a very low orbit to a very high orbit, there more efficient ways to do it. But like the standard way that we think about changing orbits is you burn it. Uh, your new, you burn at the low point of your transfer orbit, then you burn at the high point of your transfer orbit to raise up, uh, into your final orbit, like whatever. And like, that's, that's really what they're planning on doing here or had planned to do here was bring the low point of that moon orbit way down. And once we get down closer, when we're moving really fast, um, we can dump, you know, all this fuel overboard and it's more efficient than dumping the fuel overboard when you're moving slower in a higher orbit. Weird effect, Uh, but it's, it's true. And so I'm pretty sure that's what they're doing though. They likely don't wait until they get down to the paraloon to the absolute lowest part of the orbit. They're probably burning before that to actually go into their mm-hmm. into their final landing. So you're saying that they dump fuel when like when you say dump fuel overboard, you mean like I mean burning the burn. engines, yeah. 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 Well, okay, yeah. So but they're doing this to lower the orbit? Yeah, I mean that that's how you So wouldn't that be a retrograde burn? Yep. Mm-hmm. So how is that more effective? Efficient. I mean, I still think it is the right way to do it, but I don't know if it's. You know, I that's no, I that's a fascinating connection which I hadn't I had never really thought about. But yeah, like like a home and transfer is like the most efficient, like least delta v to get from one orbit to a different orbit. You know, one semi major axis to a, a new one, mm-hmm. and you usually hear about that in the context of going from one planet to another planet, right? But. I mean, it just works for any pairs of orbits. So if you're in a high lunar orbit and you want to get into a lower lunar orbit, so you can ultimately park yourself on the surface softly, hopefully, <laughs> um, that a home and transfer would kind of be the way to do it, which is to yeah, do a big burn at your periapsis and then your next burn at your, uh, or sorry, a big burn at your apoapsis and then your next burn at your periapsis. So David, what I think what you're confused about is the Oberth effect. Is what I'm what I'm referring to here. Is that what you're referring to? Yep. So, so how does that? Okay. Yeah. So go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. The question is, how does the Oberth effect work? And the answer is, like, we don't we don't talk about it. We just accept that it's true and move on. Um, but like, well, um, basically, I kind of get it if it's a prograde burn, but this is a retrograde burn. So wouldn't that not? They, they are both the same. Yeah. It's it's a relativity thing. Oh, I guess we we don't sense. care. Yeah. Because you're just getting more push against the fuel, if you will, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like like qualitatively, even though the retrograde burn, you're like, well, now it's even worse. But it's like, yeah, you want it to be worse because the worse yeah, it is, that's the, the more it'll it. slow yeah, you yeah. down. <laughs> right, yeah. right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. 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 And so like we we use all of these like shortcut terms and none of them are are correct. So like while we're talking about this, don't think that when David says pushing against the fuel that that means that <laughs> yeah, the faster you're moving the more, <laughs> right? But I mean like we we understand what you mean. Like it's it's just a shortcut. Really it comes and, and like burning the same amount of fuel gets you the same delta v no matter where you are, right? It's not like your spe- the specific impulse of your engine changes. It's not like you're lighter when you're going faster. Although I think technically yeah, technically you have more mass when you're going faster. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that trading uh, potential energy for kinetic energy, or I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's what it, I think that's actually the correct, a correct mm-hmm. thing to say is like, that's more efficient or the, the result of that kinetic energy that you've produced, even though it's the same amount of kinetic energy, the, the result of that kinetic energy is greater, the lower you are in, in a, in a, gravity field. It's been a long time since we've talked about like raw orbital dynamics on this show. <laughs> but yeah, like that that's all that that 18 kilometer orbit like I think I'm pretty sure that's all it comes down to is just one particular tactic for for landing. Okay, yeah. So, uh okay, I guess, you know, uh, well, I get 
I guess then I should probably not ask the question I was going to ask, which is, do we know if the frigate is now in a solar, uh, uh, yeah, solar orbit, heliocentric orbit? Yeah, because if they didn't, if they didn't smash it into the moon, which is the most sensible thing to do in my opinion, if they <laughs> if they flung it out, they either flung it out towards the sun or they are leaving got it, it in cislun- like the Earth, yeah, moon system, yeah, space, in this, which in this is dangerous, chaotic. chaotic region, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I, I, I did, they didn't say anything specific that just that it took yeah. some you know it was phrased in a way like you know took some actions to avoid uh striking the moon or something like that but um i'm i, I, I googled with uh jonathan mcdowell's name uh-huh. and uh this is back from the 16th it's today's the 20th yeah and it crashed on the 19th so back on the 16th jonathan mcdowell said meanwhile the frigate stage from the lunar luna 25 launch has passed a few thousand kilometers from the moon and is now heading either for deep earth orbit or solar orbit. Unfortunately, its trajectory is not known. So okay. I wonder they're going to put it in like one of those weak, uh, <laughs> uh, weak boundary orbits or whatever. Right. And, uh, it's going to end up hitting capstone. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Poor little capstone. Okay. Interesting. Because, yeah, I would figure uh, heliocentric would, you know, be the safer, you know, interplanetary yeah. graveyard orbit for exactly the reasons you you say. Well, I guess just uh, 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 real quick, the um, the propulsion system turns out to be relatively, well, turns out to be relevant to this whole story of Luna 25 not making it. And um, basically, uh, you know, it uses Hypergals, uh, UDMH and NTO, if it's anything like any of these other Russian propulsion systems that they, they use. And uh, basically, there's a lot of, you know, small and medium sized, you know, we're talking like less than, you know, 10 kilogram thrusters that are all for doing your kind of uh, yaw, pitch and roll maneuvering and your attitude control. And then uh, if you look at the bottom of the spacecraft, though, you see there's, you know, one big engine and then two smaller ones off to the side. And those two smaller ones, they're the they're called the, you know, the DMP engines, the DMP system, um, which is, you know, Russian acronym. And they're, they're the soft landing ones for, you know, landing on the moon and just kind of shaving out your last little bit of uh, vertical velocity so you can touch down nice and soft. Um, and then the one in the middle, that's the, the main engine, uh, uh, KTD, which has been used a lot before. Um, the, uh, the company, uh, KB Kamash has been basically, building lunar engines since the beginning of the Russian or Soviet space program. And so they've got a long history with this and they built this, uh, this, this main engine for, for Luna 25. And it also shows up on other things like the bars M, uh, spacecraft, which are these kind of, uh, uh, earth observing ones that, you know, uh, the Roscosmos has been uh, launching more recently. And so, uh, it's, it's that, that big engine that, you know, they do for their kind of impulsive maneuvers. So that has 400 to 800 kilograms thrust. So it's, it's a variable thrust engine. And, uh, so like, yeah, so Ben, like you said, on August 16th, it gets into lunar orbit on August 19th, it wants to go into this, uh, pre-landing orbit, uh, uh this Homini pre-landing orbit. And, uh, Unfortunately, that was at, you know, 2.10 p.m. Uh, Moscow time at 2.57 p.m. Moscow time. So 47 minutes later during the burn, communications are lost. And at this point, for a while, we had been getting uh, some of this might uh, be subject to change because we we're getting unofficial uh, reports um, from different uh, uh, groups. And uh, it, it, that's kind of like one of the two main things. We learned that communications were lost during the burn. And then we also learned, again from unofficial sources, that a computational error gave a 1.5 times greater impulse uh, or change in momentum than was planned. And so uh, basically now we've got the official uh, news and the official news from Roscosmos itself is that um, indeed there was a computational error and that different impulse put it in a uh, an off nominal orbit and uh, while they uh, you know spent the weekend trying to regain contact uh, with uh, with the vehicle they didn't and they are pretty sure that it's gone and went and did a hard landing on the surface um, and uh, Sam in the chat uh, had earlier pointed out that uh, Barishi Chandrayaan 2 right we've done plenty of hard landings on the lunar surface but this one's coming in from this one's coming in quite hot compared to the typical one <laughs> and so it probably left a nice big crater uh, by Sam's estimation and so yeah there's a uh, an investigation commission to follow and figure out what's going on so we'll probably have some more thing to start talking about that 
But uh, I also wanted to call back to that episode 413 when we talked uh, about the delays uh, that, you know, pushed it back. And I, I, I started with like delays going all the way back to like 2010. And one of them involved the, uh, uh, the flight control computer for the spacecraft, which I uh, can imagine is a culprit in this uh, Luna 25's failure. And uh, to just... Uh, Recall that essentially in 2010, the head of um, one of these Russian uh, companies uh, basically said that they want, you know, a next gen flight control computer in three years. And the engineers in Moscow were like, yeah, we're not going to be able to do that in three years. And so they wound up building the flight control uh, computer in house. And that made it very expensive and added to the delays over the the decades. And so, uh, yeah, it, um, That'll be interesting to see if that <laughs> turns out to be uh, a big issue. And so that's, yeah, so that's really the story with Luna 25. But I thought it'd be interesting to really kind of summarize what's been going on, uh, not just for uh, uh, Russia trying to get to the moon, but everybody getting to the moon. And so um, Russia and Roscosmos have been having one heck of a tough time uh, with their interplanetary missions. So this is after the Soviet Union. Um, this was actually their first lunar mission since then. I mean, we know, like, right, we've been saying Luna 24 was in 1976, but there was nothing intermediate between that, like a non-Luna mission that was, you know, sending some Russian CubeSat to, you know, to the moon. So so they're 0 for 1, I guess. This is also part of the Luna Globe program, and so they do have nominally plans for a Luna 26 and 27, uh, which are, you know, these orbiters and landers that should be flying in 27 and 28, respectively, uh, 2027, 2028, respectively. Um, and, you know, who knows exactly how that's going to end up shaking out, um, that this is also part of the International Lunar Research Station that China is in front, uh, is, is in charge of, uh, this idea of, you know, basically the competitor to Artemis, um, similar to how we have, you know, Viper and these kind of, you know, uh, intuitive machines missions that are just these commercial ones. And they're technically still part of Artemis, even though they are not Artemis 1 or Artemis 2 or Artemis 3. Uh, analogously, this Luna 25 was, you know, nominally part of this uh, supporting the International Lunar Research Station. And so, you know, trying to get to the South Pole has been challenging. And so, yeah, so so Russia essentially is 0 for 1. Roscosmos is 0 for 1 with their lunar mission. Um with Mars, right, they infamously had Mars 96, uh, which was a big expensive mission that had a propulsion failure and didn't make it beyond Earth orbit, just re-entered right away. And so there was a propulsion failure. And then, of course, Phobos Grunt, which I brought up in the context of Luna 25 back in episode 413, they, uh, in 2011, uh, that mission was lost uh, also due to a, due a flight uh, uh control system failure. And so in that case, I think it burned, but it basically burned the wrong way. And it wound up, you know, going who knows where, just cruising off to space. And so technically, the only success that they've had is that they teamed up with ESA with the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, which is still in orbit and doing a great job around Mars. And so that's it. And as far as Venus or anywhere else, nothing. There's been no, you know, Roscosmos missions to Venus or any of the other planets out there. That is pretty tough. And so uh, while it seems to be all bad news for getting to the moon between Lunar Flashlight, Hakuto R, Chandrayaan 2, and Bereshit, I think it's worth pointing out that there have been successes or successes. Uh, uh, Changa 5, Capstone. Uh, we shouldn't forget the uh, uh, Korean uh, Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter, Denuri. That, that's, you know, is a recent mission to the moon that successfully entered orbit. Um, but I guess, you know, Changa 5 was a lander and that's it. <laughs> you know, those other ones are just entering, you know, different types of lunar orbits. But landing on the moon has been very, it's been, it's been a tough, it's been a dry spell. Uh, yeah. And so Chandrayaan 3 is up next um, this week, actually. And so the, uh, the race for landing at the South Polar region continues. No one has ever landed down there before. That's also worth noting that these are harder than landing at lower latitudes. And uh, unless I'm mistaken, just using Wikipedia as my source, it looks like the furthest south, if you're wondering, anyone has ever landed uh, a piece of metal was uh, Surveyor 4, which landed at 41 degrees south in January of 68. So um, as far as getting to a high uh, latitude at the moon uh, safely and in one piece, uh, we're still trying to do it. <laughs> Man. So for, I mean, I'm basically at 41 degrees north 
on earth, uh, in the middle of Pennsylvania. So like, <laughs> yeah, that's like, if you haven't even gotten to Canada yet, you got a ways farthest, to go. I guess technically the farthest South. Yeah. The farthest South is probably, uh, Pelly Island, which is 41.7 North just clicking on uh, on Google Maps. So yeah, haven't even gotten to Canada yet. Right, as I say, the, the lunar Canada has has been untouched by metal. I mean, well, metal hasn't softly landed there yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was funny that your uh, your generalization was landed metal. I'm like, yeah, well, well <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to be spacecraft, no, metal, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I caught myself. So let's do three short and sweets this week. Ben, what is the first? Starship Booster Coronation. Starship Booster 9, in preparation for the second orbital test flight, has been equipped with a hot staging interstage ring. This will allow Starship to ignite its engines before separation from its booster, thus resolving the staging issues encountered during the first test flight. The addition of the new interstage ring has increased the overall height of the Starship stack. As a result, the Starship Quick Disconnect Arm, or SQD, has been raised to accommodate the change in the vehicle's length. And then next up, Intuitive Machines has a launch date. Intuitive Machines has announced a launch date for its Nova Sea Lunar Lander. This mission, called IM-1, will launch from Kennedy Space Center Pad Launch Complex 39A during a launch window that opens on November 15th. The IM-1 mission is part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, or CLPS. This launch of IM-1 will be the first lunar mission for Intuitive Machines and possibly the first CLPS launch as well. The other lander, Astrobotics Peregrine Lander, is still awaiting the debut of its Vulcan Centaur launch vehicle. And finally, Russia explores reusable first stage. Roscosmos subsidiary Sayanimash announced that it will begin drop tests for a reusable Russian launch vehicle. The six meter long rocket called Krylo SV is a scaled down tech demonstrator version that will be dropped from a helicopter at three kilometers before gliding down to a runway using fins and small turbojet engines for steering. Ultimately, the goal is for a two stage rocket capable of bringing 600 kilograms to orbit while returning the first stage with future tests planned for 2025 with a larger scale prototype on a suborbital trajectory. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. And let's move on then to questions, comments, and corrections. And we actually have a question and a correction or a comment. I mean, however you want to look at it. Um, <laughs> so the first one, I guess, falls into the correction category, right? Yeah. This this is me. Um, so in episode 420, when I was talking about Juno, uh, I said that it that Juno... Uh, its spin rate decreased, like it slowed down in its spin uh, as it opened its solar rays. And then I said that it lost about a third of its angular momentum. Uh, so Benjamin W. wrote in to say, actually, like, no, uh, angular momentum is conserved. <laughs> you can't do that uh, without like a yo-yo D spinner, right? Which like the whole system maintains the same angular momentum, but it like separates the angular momentum into two separate bodies. And we only talk about one of them. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very nitpicky correction, uh, but it is totally correct. I should have said uh, it's angular velocity drops by uh, two thirds rather than it's uh, angular momentum. And then we had somebody write in, uh, this is, uh, Louis or Lewis, uh, <laughs> wrote in asking a question and we normally would have just, uh, replied. Um, but because it talks about angular momentum, I thought that we had to include it. Um, so Lewis asks, um, have there been missions where they desaturated uh, reaction wheels on a vehicle just by spinning them down and quote unquote unwinding the spacecraft in the process? And like, this is such an interesting question. Lewis asked the question in a way that sounds like totally reasonable, you know, like you have to fire your thrusters to desaturate your uh, reaction wheels. And like, why don't you just spin the reaction, slow the reaction wheels down and like, yeah, the satellite will spin around for a little bit, but like, you know, you just, you just deal with it. And the problem is that like, as reasonable as it sounds, it's envisioning a situation where you can slow down a reaction wheel by spinning the vehicle in the opposite direction. And then somehow the vehicle stops spinning in that direction and that's that's not the case yes yeah. you can slow down the reaction wheels by spinning the spacecraft uh but you know if you 
add uh, a braking force to that spinning reaction wheel. Yeah, the reaction wheel will slow down, the spacecraft will start rotating. But then how do you slow down the spacecraft? And that's where um, thrusters come in. You slow down the spacecraft spinning by using your thrusters instead of your reaction wheels. Um, And like, yeah, there are some like corners of reality where this works. Like if you had two reaction wheels um you could in the same controlling the same axis you could slow one down by spinning up the other one but that doesn't really solve the problem it just distributes it um and uh control moment gyros like uh they have on the iss um they work a little bit differently they have to be spinning in order for you to apply a torque and you apply a torque by pushing them uh so that their axis of rotation changes like you're pushing on the ends of the of the gyroscope the rod that's running through the gyroscope rather than spinning or slowing the gyroscope right and so with uh with control moment gyroscopes you will more often have an overly constrained system where basically you have i forget what the gnc specific term is um, but it's where you have you know your degrees of freedom and you have more than one thing controlling any one of those degrees of freedom uh, mm. Overdetermined, chubby, yeah, maybe, maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Um, but with with CMGs, you more often have a situation where you can um, desaturate one against the other because they can build up their extra momentum in a direction that's a parallel but opposite rather than orthogonal to another CMG. And it's just because you can push them in more ways than a normal. It, it's it doesn't happen very often, but like I'm just saying, yeah, there are some exceptions, but like generally, no, you that's not a thing that you can ever do because like you've saturated them for a reason. And if you undo that reason, then you undo that, that saturation. Dennis, you, you mentioned like very real world considerations where um, sometimes you build up saturation as a function of like slewing across the sky and in a world where there's you know no friction and cats are spherical or or cows are spherical and always in a vacuum or like whatever the you know the standard like physics simplifications (laughs) are (laughs) or chickens yeah sure uh in that world yeah you could like slew backwards across the exact same path that you followed and like that would solve a couple of problems but like it's totally ignoring um some of the other reality and but like that in reality yeah like you you could probably there's another corner of reality where like i think you could pick a very particular path and if you could follow it exactly you could probably pull some of the um, excess spin out of your, out of your, but like, you'd have to know exactly what the mass distribution of your spacecraft was. And like all these things that we just, we don't have a way to, to know and to continually measure as it changes. But I thought, I thought these two were fun to put together. I hope I didn't go on for yeah, too yeah. long. No, no, that's interesting. So moving on to this week's space of history, we have seven winners, uncle Willie and Astro who have correct answers. And then we have Lee Cycle. Chris S. Sukier and then Ryan R., who all get bonus points. So, congratulations. Uh, a lot of winners here. The clue was Telemach Telescope Face. And what is the event for that ridiculous clue? <laughs> <laughs> right. This week in Spaceflight History is the 25th of August, 2003. It was the launch of the Spitzer Space Telescope. So, we've talked about Spitzer a number of times in the past. Uh, in episode 214, we talked about the then upcoming end of Spitzer's mission. Um, in episode 128, we interviewed Dr. Lee Bennett, uh, Spitzer Science Center deputy manager. That was a great interview. Um, unfortunately, in episode 273, we actually talked about Spitzer's launch as a Tewissif event. Like uh, David, when I realized this, I put it in our group chat and you said, Oh, yeah, but it must have been a different event, right? Nope, it was actually the launch, the 25th of August, the exact same event that I'm talking about right now, so I can't pretend like it's anything different. (laughs) To be fair, um, last time I came up with a clue that was so bad that nobody got it, and Spitzer is such a rich topic that uh, I was able to find totally new things to talk about that I didn't talk about last time. So uh, we're going to go ahead with it because we can't go back in time and change the clue. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, okay, so speaking of the clue, uh, Telly McTelescope face. Uh, everybody who got bonus points got bonus points because they explained uh, what my dumb joke was here in the clue. So uh, Spitzer was launched as Sirtif, uh, uh, S-I-R-T-F, the Space Infrared Telescope Facility. And after their checkout um, procedures and everything, they renamed it to... Uh, Spitzer. And the name Spitzer had been selected uh, long before launch uh, by a like public submission contest. Um, and like the submission deadline was at the end of 2001, like two years before the launch. This is like plenty of time to go and pick uh, a winner. And like, to be clear, this was a write-in contest, not a voting, like a public vote. Uh, when you do a public vote, you wind up naming, uh, what was it, a fire a fire boat or like a Coast Guard boat, Bodie McBoatface? It was a boat. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a boat. Yeah, it, I think it was uh, a Nordic British. Boat? Uh, oh, it was, it was actually a uh, an autonomous underwater vehicle. Okay. So it's more like Subby McSubface, really. Yeah. One of the absolute delights of the internet age is uh, Bodie McBoatface. And so like this was a, this was a contest, not a vote. And the, the winner turns out the, the name was selected. Uh, the selected name was submitted by somebody in British Columbia. Um, and the winner was awarded a trip down to Florida to actually view the launch. And like, so cool to like have a vehicle named because of a essay that you wrote and to go get to watch it launch is just very cool. And of course, um, Spitzer is named after Dr. Lyman Spitzer. Uh, he was an astronomer and physicist, like, like a nuclear physicist. And he wrote a paper, um, in 1946, it was, uh, published by the Rand corporation, uh, like this giant think tank corporation, right? They're still going They're They do really interesting things, uh, pretty often. But back in 1946, he wrote this paper, basically becoming the first person to like publicly propose an orbital observatory, like the idea of a space telescope long before we had actually lofted anything into space. It's very cool. Very worthy uh, namesake for one of the great observatories. Absolutely. Jubby in the chat mentions that Spitzer was also a mountaineer, which is a fitting hobby since Spitz means peak in German. I totally agree. I, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. One, one of those all around kind of people who just like thinks and invents and discovers things about the universe. So when I last talked about Spitzer, I talked, I believe, exclusively about the science instruments and how they were cooled. Um, and so this time I wanted to talk about <laughs> the instruments and how they were warmed. So Spitzer had its original mission where it ran in a super cold state so that it could do all of these infrared uh, observations. And uh, it ran, I think the original mission lasted for like two years. They used up like an ounce of uh, super fluid helium uh, every day. Like just the thing sipped on the helium supply. Um, and there were a lot of major changes from the beginning concept of what this vehicle would look like to what it actually launched that allowed them to drastically reduce their uh, helium consumption and therefore their mass. And so they, they got to fly on uh, cheaper, uh, a cheaper vehicle, a Delta II, than the like atlases that they were looking at initially. Hmm. But after they ran out of helium they moved into the warm mission and actually the warm mission was split into two halves there was the the spitzer warm mission and then there was the spitzer beyond mission um but collectively they're very often referred to as just the warm mission and this was like this really interesting mission extension where a vehicle that needs helium to run can still do uh, observation work without helium and basically it comes down to the fact that one instrument was able, it had two sensors that were able to run at like the ambient, uh, temperature, the, the passively cooled temperature of just radiating, um, heat off into space. And the Spitzer war mission is like this heroic version of doing 
uh, space telescope work because they had so many problems that they could see coming, right? It wasn't like they were design mistakes. There were just stellar dynamic issues orbital dynamic issues that they knew they were going to encounter. They had plenty of time to solve and boy, did they solve them. They really just knocked them out of the park. So let's, let's give a little background and talk about the, the nominal mission communication system. Um, So Spitzer ran collecting data using only one instrument at a time. And it transitioned between instruments uh, every one to two weeks It had a nominal downlink speed of 2.2 megabytes per second. Um, And downlinking their data took about 20 to 60 minutes, just based on the normal amount of data that they would build up. And that varied uh, how often they had to downlink data, varied depending on which instrument they were using. When they were using MIPS and doing like a a MIPS campaign, um, they had to do downlinks twice a day. Um, just because it generated so much data, but that was like the, the most frequent. Remember that downlinking data is a tough thing to schedule because you're having to use DSN, the deep space network, which everybody wants to use. Um, and so you want to limit the amount of time that you're, uh, requesting time, um, on the, the big satellite dishes. And Spitzer did have the capability to store up more data. Um, I think it had like six gigabytes of storage, but you don't want to use up your storage. If you do, you start losing data from observations and it's, it's lost time. And sort of the whole trick to space telescopes is making them as productive as possible during their lifetime. Well, once they moved into the warm mission, um, they were only running um, IRAC campaigns, which is the one instrument uh, that, that they were able to use. And then they were only using two out of the four channels because they were the only two channels that were operational at, at this, um, this higher temperature. And so that cut their data production in half. Unfortunately, um, their downlink speeds were degrading as time went on. And the two effects roughly canceled each other out. They produced half the data, but they also had half of the downlink speed. The reason that the downlink speed was degrading is because Spitzer was in this Earth trailing orbit. It was orbiting the sun, almost in the same orbit as Earth, but not quite. And it slowly fell behind the Earth. It's in like a slightly higher orbit. And so the angle uh, between the Earth and Spitzer relative to the sun is slowly getting wider and wider. And so from Spitzer's perspective, Earth is receding into the distance. Okay, so I, I talked about optimizing... Uh, your observation time on a satellite. And that not only uh, extends to not losing data that you've spent time collecting, but it also means trying to do observations while you're downlinking data from other observations. Spitzer is a really gorgeous, compact satellite. Um, It has sort of like this phalanx shield on one side uh, that is both a solar array and a heat shield from the sun. Um, And then it's got a bus at the bottom. It's sort of this uh, hexagonal, uh, octagonal uh, box. And uh, on top of the box is the telescope with the cryostat, the, the thing that make cold. Um, And then on the bottom of it is the, uh, high gain antenna, the the dish that lets you talk to Earth uh, at, at high bandwidth, and so you can imagine that if you're pointing the high gain antenna at Earth, because it's not something that you can swivel, um, you have to point the telescope in almost exactly the opposite direction. It's off by a little bit, but it's almost exactly the opposite direction. And when you're pointing the telescope in the opposite direction, it's still pointing somewhere, right? So if you can. Um, be downlinking data and also observing something that's directly opposite the earth. That's great. And in fact, that's what they did. Um, Every time they downlinked, they were still doing observations. And like, this isn't as constraining as you'd think, right? Like you might think, oh, well then we're looking at the same thing in the sky over and over and over and over. And there's no point. Well, that's not quite true because the earth is 
revolving around the sun as the year goes on, which means that the direction that's directly away from the earth is swiping across the sky. Um, and like, that's actually a pretty interesting place to be looking at the sky. Cause that's where the Milky way is. Well, actually more specifically, it's where the ecliptic is. The ecliptic, which is roughly where the Milky way is like, isn't it at least like half of it Milky way? Well, there's plenty of it lies in the Milky way. Yeah. Okay. But, okay. <laughs> but the, there's still another tilt between the two. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, be, before I move on, I want to talk about the OPZ, the Operational Pointing Zone. This is sort of a, a donut-shaped ring around the universe. Uh, well, I guess I guess technically it's around Spitzer. But uh, you can think of Spitzer uh, pointing directly at the sun and know that that's bad, right? So the distance that you have to point away from the sun is 80 degrees. So it's not quite 90 degrees, but if you tip any closer than 80 degrees towards the sun, you wind up um, splashing too many photons into the telescope aperture. It is bad. Is make mm. telescope no cold. <laughs> so, so that's the bottom of our donut. Then if you tip all the way away from the sun and look directly away from the sun, you can also uh, guess how that's bad. The sun shield then starts um, not covering the, the service module on the, on the back end of the telescope. Now, the service module is in direct sunlight. That's less bad. Um, and they, they did in fact have to tolerate some amount of direct sunlight, uh, on the back end of the vehicle, but you really didn't want to tip the vehicle straight at the sun if you didn't have to. So the operational pointing zone defines, um, the distance that you can look up away from the sun, uh, at 120 degrees away from the sun. So you have to, you have to keep the front end of the telescope pointing between greater than 80 degrees away from the sun and less than 120 degrees. Now, like I said, you, you really don't want to point the entire service end of the, of the vehicle directly at the sun, but that that's kind of what they had to do as time went on. If you think about Spitzer drifting farther and farther away from the earth, what it means is that from Spitzer's perspective, the earth is getting closer and closer to the sun. Eventually the earth would pass behind the sun uh, and would be totally eclipsed by the sun and you wouldn't be able to talk to earth anymore. But if you think about that dynamic, you start out with the earth being directly left from the sun, right? And then you wind up with earth drifting closer and closer and closer. So if you want to look at earth, you also have to kind of look at the sun. And what's interesting is like the vehicle had WASSs, WASSs. That's, those are the, the wide angle sun sensors. Um, they point up and down along the x-axis and they are a fail-safe system. If either one of them detects the sun, it puts the vehicle into safe mode so that the vehicle can correct its orientation um, and not wind up uh, pointing at the sun. This could happen uh, for a, a number of different reasons, um, but particularly this could happen if you gave Spitzer a bad program to follow. And what's interesting is beginning in September of 2016, they actually had to deactivate the WASs. They didn't have them turned off all the time, but in their in their program, they would say, okay, you're about to slew and point your uh, high gain antenna at earth before you do that turn off the wass so that when you slew all the way over uh or it's pitching actually so when you pitch all the way up so that your antenna is pointed at the earth uh the back end is pointed at the earth you're gonna see the sun and like it's okay right we kind of had to reassure spitzer you're gonna see the sun the the um service module is gonna start to heat up a little bit and it's okay so as Spitzer is drifting farther and farther away from the earth, it's experiencing slower and slower downlink speeds just due to the distance. Um, but then you also wind up uh, getting to the point where you can't tip the vehicle any farther. Like the acceptable amount of sunshine uh, quickly becomes unacceptable. Um, and so what they wound up doing was just allowing the high gain antenna to not point directly at earth. We're going to pitch up as far as we can go and it's going to be close enough. And the penalty that you pay for it is slower transmission speeds, but it'll, it'll still work at least for the amount of distance that Spitzer got away from the earth, right? Like if earth goes behind the sun, it doesn't matter what you're willing to accept. You're not going to talk to earth. 
And when you read articles about Spitzer, specifically about the end of Spitzer's mission, a lot of the time you hear talk about this sort of uh, sun uh, antenna relationship as if it was the reason that they ended the mission. And uh, it's not. I thought it was. And it, it actually isn't. By the end of Spitzer's mission, remember that, that originally Spitzer was taking 20 to 60 minutes to downlink data. By the end of its mission, it was having to uh, limit the amount of time it spent pointed at Earth because its solar panels were no longer directly illuminated. Uh, and so it's running off a of battery. But that wasn't the issue. It still took about 60 minutes to downlink all of its data every day, but its battery was good for about two and a half hours worth of transmission. It, it, it was perfectly happy doing that. That's not why they ended the mission. And like, it was a constraint, but boy, was this a loose constraint if we're talking about potentially two and a half times the amount of resource that you actually need. Like that, that's great. We, we love that. What actually wound up uh, ending the mission being the constraint that closed tight first was actually the low gain antennas, believe it or not. So the high gain antenna is on the bottom of the bus. The low gain antennas, there are two of them, and they're both on one side. You won't often see them labeled, but if you look on the hexagonal bus, one side has two little squares, and those two little squares are the low gain antennas. And the issue here is that the low gain antennas are used to recover from safe mode. Um, when the vehicle goes into safe mode, it can't use the high gain antenna. Like we built the vehicle uh, to have some like basic hard coded things in safe mode. And, and I don't think that this was something that you could change with a software update. That might, that might also be totally wrong. And it might be more that you can't use it, not because of the hardware restrictions, but because you can't point it uh, accurately enough. But by the end of Spitzer's life, it didn't really matter, right? If it's having to eat up battery to point its high gain antenna at earth, it absolutely does not matter if if, if you're able to make the software do that, because Earth is only expecting to talk to Spitzer once a day. If Spitzer can only last on its batteries for one and a half hours at that attitude, you're never going to, your, your batteries are not going to last long enough to get you out of safe mode. So as a result of all this, whenever Spitzer's doing something, it needs to be in a position where its high gain antennas can quote unquote see Earth so that when it goes into safe mode and it flattens itself out, right? It, it points the solar ray directly at the sun uh, is like one of the first steps of safe mode. When it does that, those uh, low gain antennas need to be in a place where they can hear earth calling out to them and telling the spacecraft what to do. And ultimately that's what wound up ending the mission. They, they probably could have continued for a while, but they would have, risk going into a safe mode that they couldn't ever come out of. Um, and at this point, the, the mission had been going on, had been extended twice and had gone on for so much longer. Uh, it, it more than doubled. I think it almost tripled. It might've actually tripled its, its original mission. And they said, you know what, at this point, if, if we're risking not being able to recover this thing and just suddenly not having it, we'd rather say, uh, you know, here's the end of the mission and be able to, I'm assuming, be able to schedule people off to new projects uh, rather than having surprise uh, redistribution of personnel. And, and, and they've got, I mean, it's kind of far out there, but there are some people actually proposing sending a servicing mission to get Spitzer back to life. Yeah, to continue the war mission, right? There's no way to, yeah. to refill. I mean, it, they filled the tanks on Earth with, with helium. I'm sure that in the future we'd be able to do that. But right now we can't do that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's audacious enough to even try to service something that far from, you know, <laughs> from us. And like, yeah. yeah. And how much servicing needs to happen? Really? You just need to go up and press the power button. There's nothing wrong with the vehicle. I'm sure they would like to put some, you know, some new hardware on it, but yeah, like I, I think that's not a hard servicing mission uh, aside from the fact that it wasn't designed for it, but yeah. Right. So am I, am I correct to, to guess that it's just, to start up the war mission again? Uh, I, I'm assuming as much. I can't remember the details about it. What's what's really cool is like now it doesn't really matter. Um, so Iraq's two warm sensors or warm channels at the time 
they were the most sensitive in that band of light in, in that color that had ever flown. Like that was it. They were the best sensors. And what's cool is that uh, I found, I found one particular document that was really, really good. Um, it was published by Caltech. It's titled the Spitzer warm mission science prospects. Um, and it was published, uh, before, um, Spitzer went into its warm mission and it sort of talks speculatively about what Spitzer could do for its warm mission. And that that's a, that's a great perspective. It kind of sucks because like you can read things and then not be able to say on a podcast, this is what happened, but it gives you the, the context for what the alternatives were and like how early they were considering some of these things. And so what's really cool is that in this document, it talked about how, about how the Iraq uh, sensor was the best sensor uh, in space. And it said, until JWST comes online, this will be true. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's really great. Like, yeah, having more telescopes in space is better, but like JWST is now blowing Spitzer out of the water. You know, Spitzer is an absolute workhorse. Like it, it was just always so useful if whatever you were looking at, like almost all the times, like it seemed like no matter what you were looking at, if they also had Spitzer data on that field, that mm. would be awesome for you. And they, they basically imaged the entire sky. Um, they, they did get whole sky observation with one of the instruments. I don't remember which one it was. Oh, I see. I see. Uh, so IRAS, the instrument surveyed almost the entire sky four times. It surveyed 96% of the sky four times over. All right, so that's this week in spaceflight history. Cool. All right, well, thanks for um, taking a previously covered topic and then finding some new information about it, uh, keeping it fresh, uh, hopefully. So just to make sure you have X'd that event off, right? So we're not going to come back to this a third time. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. It's a great spacecraft. We could do a Spitzer 3 if you want. But, I'm going to uh, un it when nobody's looking. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not confident that you didn't do that already. <laughs> We'll come back to it again in a year. <laughs> I'll never tell. So anyway, the date range for next week is the 29th of August through the 4th of September. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1984, icicle. Potentially the easiest clue of all time. So if you think you know what that single word clue is in reference to, uh, you can give us an email at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon and use the hashtag thisweeksf or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server. And good luck. All right, so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. And we have nine events, lots of upcoming spaceflight events. And Dennis, what is the first of that nine? Yeah, let's not tarry. We got a Falcon 9 Block 5 taking Starlink Group 611 to LEO. This has a window from on Wednesday, August 23rd from 0147 UTC to 0500 UTC launching out of Slick 40 at the Cape. And then after that, on the 23rd, uh, we have a Soyuz 2.1A, and that is carrying progress, MS-24 or 85P. That's the NASA designation, I believe. And this is a resupply mission to the International Space Station. The liftoff time looks to be at 0108 and 10 seconds UTC, and that's launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan from 31-6, whatever that is, which I guess is a... Uh, Pat, Pat 316. Yeah. And then the coverage of the rendezvous and docking uh, will be on NASA TV on the 24th, starting at 11 p.m. That's when the coverage starts in docking scheduled for 11.50 p.m. So check that out. All right. Then we have uh, Chandrayaan 3 is going to be landing. It is currently uh, scheduled to start on August 23rd at around 1745 hours IST. Um, and IST is five and a half hours ahead of UTC, 10 and a half hours ahead of uh, Eastern time. I, I'm assuming they're going to do a live stream. They, they tend to do that. Just this last week, they um, did their second uh, deboost operation to go into a lower orbit. This would be the one uh, that Russia's uh, uh, Luna spacecraft failed to do properly. Um, and so right now, Chandrayaan-3 is sitting in a 25 by 134 kilometer orbit. And then we have uh, a mission we've mentioned before because it's been delayed uh, for uh, quite a few weeks now. But uh, Electron, Rocket Lab's Electron vehicle, uh, 
doing its We Love the Nightlife uh, mission, or uh, Capella Acadia 1. So, right, Capella, a company that has a bunch of uh, synthetic aperture radar or SAR satellites. Um, this uh, are already on orbit, but this one is going to be a single um, SAR uh, Acadia satellite. So this is a new gen that Capella is coming up with. And so uh, in any event, uh, look out for that launch on Wednesday, August 23rd, uh, with a window between 2330 UTC going into Thursday, August 24th, uh, and ending at 0330 UTC. And so this one will be launching out of uh, the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand uh, at Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1B. And then after that, on the 25th, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 with Crew 7. And uh, that will be carrying Commander Jasmine Mogbelli, Pilot Andreas Mogensen, Mission Specialist Number One Satoshi Furukawa, uh, and Mission Specialist Number Two Konstantin Borisov. So that will be launching at 0749 UTC from Kennedy Space Center from Launch Complex 39A. And then you can watch uh, coverage of the rendezvous and docking on the 26th, starting at 12:15 in the morning, and that's Eastern Time. The docking is scheduled for 2.02 in the a.m. And the hatch opening is for 3.47. So very, very early times. But if you want to get up very early or if you live in some other part of the world, then check it out. Next, we have an H2A in the 202 configuration launching CRISM and SLIM. Uh, CRISM is the X-ray imaging and spectroscopy mission. Please believe me, it's pronounced <laughs> CRISM. Uh, the acronym is X-R-I-S-M. And it's either CRISM or CRISM and uh that that is not what it is right i know i know it starts with x-ray and should not be pronounced cuh but that's what we're going with it is much better than its former name which was the x-ray astronomy recovery mission or x a r m zarm or xarm or charm actually charm is not bad it just that's not how you pronounce xarm <laughs> um so anyway uh chrism is the long-awaited replacement for the hitomi satellite uh really exciting um and i had no idea that chrism was going to be launching with a friend so slim is the smart lander for investigating moon that is a tortured acronym uh it is a lunar probe <laughs> that is targeting a small crater in mare nectaris um, near the moon's equator. So that should be a lot easier uh, than landing at the poles. Chrism and Slim, uh, again, will be launching on an H2A. And that launches Saturday, August 26th at uh, 034 hours UTC from Tanegashima. And then next, we've got another Falcon 9 Block 5. And this one will be taking a pair of uh, high-throughput communication satellites uh, built by Boeing and operated by SES. These are the O3B M-Power 5 and 6 satellites. Uh, what's interesting about them, in addition to completing this uh, uh, constellation uh, that will ultimately end up with 11 of these is that it's going to MEO, medium Earth orbit. And so it has a, uh, a launch date currently uh, instantaneous uh, on Sunday, August 27th at 2104 UTC. And this will be flying at a slick 40 at the Cape as well. And then after that, on the 29th, uh, we have an Atlas 5 in the 551 configuration and that is launching Enroll 107. So this is a classified payload for the National Reconnaissance Office uh, launching from Slick 41 at the Cape. The uh, launch time, we don't exactly know. It'll be sometime during that day. <laughs> so, you know, watch it if you can. And finally, yes, we finally got through all of the upcoming spaceflight events. Our last one is a news conference on OSIRIS-REx. And uh, they're going to be talking about its uh, the sample capsules landing uh, and recovery plans. That's happening Wednesday, August 30th at 5 p.m. Eastern time on NASA TV. Also, there is a new OSIRIS-REx stamp that's coming out. And I'm not normally a philatelist, uh, but I was at <laughs> the post office while wearing my uh, Cassini final dive shirt and the person behind the counter identified me as a fellow nerd and pointed out um, the Osiris Rex uh, stamp and the 
uh, upcoming JWST stamp. So like if that interests you, totally go get them. And those are your upcoming Space Flight events. All right, which means it's time to do with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Jordan, Mike, Mr. Cesium, Chris S., Dave M., Astro, Chubby, Gopal, Dino, Noki, and Uncle Willie for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about, where you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everyone. See you.